This podcast is brought to you by the new Blessings of the Faith series from PNR Publishing, available September 22nd. Visit prpbooks.com and hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, you are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined, as always, by Carl Truman. Uh, I happen to be a pastor in uh, Virginia, a PCA pastor. Carl is a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. And uh, it's a privilege to be with you all uh, again today. Well, we want to talk about a subject that is interesting to both Carl and I. It, it is hopefully interesting to all of you, and at the very least, uh, something that you're following along with, because uh, periodically uh, a story related to today's topic uh, will will pop up in the news. And what we want to talk about today is religious liberty, specifically the value of religious liberty and why Christians ought to care about religious liberty and why even unbelievers ought to care about religious liberty. Carl, I, I read just in the last week a couple more stories uh, that came out just in the last five or six days. One is an update on the Baronel Stutzman uh, case. She's the florist from Washington State who, again, serves all manner of clientele. What she won't do is flower arrangements celebrating gay weddings or homosexual marriages. And, of course, she's been sued. She's had to go to court. She's gone to um, the Washington State Supreme Court twice and she's had two petitions to the United States Supreme Court. Um, and it was just announced a few days ago, maybe a week or so ago, that the U.S. Supreme Court is not going to hear her case, which was a bit of a blow. That was a hard thing to see. I mean, she's been under the gun now for a number of years and has faced all kinds of threats, lawsuits, uh, financial loss. I mean, all manner of, of ugliness over this. Again, she serves all manner of clientele. She just won't do flower arrangements celebrating gay weddings. Now, another story I found uh, just, um, I think, two or three days ago was a family farm um, owned by a, a young family. It's a husband and wife. And they have several young children. Has been banned from the farmer's market of their city because they will not host a gay wedding on their farm. Um, where I live in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, various farms have found that they can add to their income, supplement their income by um, hosting a section of their farm for a wedding venue. And they've set up you know, nice venues and, and those are popping up kind of all over the place. And, and same thing with this young family, they allow their, their farm to be used, a portion of their property as a wedding venue. Well, they won't host gay weddings and so now they're facing um, harassment because of that. And now they've been banned uh, from uh, the farmer's market. And of course, oftentimes these young farmers in these cities, you know, the farmer's market is a very 
good opportunity for them again to supplement their income and to uh, uh, to make inroads into servicing uh, restaurants, et cetera. And and I could go on. Uh, you know, again, we have the Jack Phelps case out of uh, Colorado. Um, there was a a couple um, in uh, wedding photographers in uh, in in Oregon who were bankrupted uh, by the state uh, because they wouldn't uh, uh, take photos at, at at gay weddings, et cetera. So we're seeing, it seems like, an increase, unsurprisingly, an increase of these sorts of stories. And um, what is strange to me are the number of Christians I see that are either confused about the issues at stake or maybe even outright sort of ambivalent about religious liberty to begin with. And I don't know if it's just because they're poorly schooled in history and the fact that, you know, religious liberty was, you know, kind of one of our, our mother rights, along with freedom of the press and, and freedom of speech. You have freedom of liberty, religious liberty, which is arguably sort of the, the engine behind uh, the founding. Of, of the nation was religious liberty. And now that seems to be met by ambivalence, oddly enough, by a lot of Christians, younger Christians than me, maybe more hip, but they just almost seem to suggest that it's unseemly for Christians to press for religious liberty. Now, I've just thrown out a whole lot there, um, but I know you've done some writing on religious liberty. This is an area of interest for you. Um, uh, you have colleagues that are very much involved in uh, the debate. Uh, over religious liberty and seeking to preserve religious liberty. Give me some of your thoughts in terms, first of all, of a couple of the cases we're seeing. Why is baking a cake or arranging flowers such a big deal? Well, I think the the answer to that, Todd, to some extent, depends on a sort of paradigm shift that's taking place within our culture. Uh, when you think about the founding of, of the United States, when you think about 1776 and all that, and you mm -hmm. think about Thomas Jefferson, and I've quoted this statement of Jefferson probably on the podcast, but certainly many times in lectures over the last couple of years, when Jefferson in, in his notes on the state of Virginia is reflecting on the issue of religious liberty, he makes this interesting comment that uh, to the effect of, you know, what does it matter to me whether my neighbor believes in one God or 20 gods or no gods at all? It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. I mean, it's a classic. <laughs> memorable Jeffersonian line. Yeah. And to me, the key is the latter part of that sentence when he says, you know, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Mm -hmm. In other words, the way Jefferson conceptualizes, we might say, selfhood or personhood at that, that moment in time is very much in terms of uh, freedom, uh, freedom for bodily safety, for want of a better word, mm -hmm. and freedom to own private property. Uh, that was very much the the Enlightenment self as. Uh, Thomas Jefferson and his contemporaries conceptualized it. We now live in a very different world where the self is conceptualized psychologically. Uh, we tend to think of, of selfhood not in terms of whether uh, our pockets are picked and our legs are broken. Right. We don't tend to think in terms of, of, of property and bodily safety. We tend to think in terms of, for, for better or worse, we might say mental health. Right. What hurts which, my feelings? What makes yeah. me feel unsafe or that kind yeah. of thing? Right. I mean, we're, we're recording this the week after Simone Biles withdrew from a number yes. of uh, Olympic uh, competitions and not wanting to comment one way or the other on, on, right. on Simone Biles, simply to say it's interesting that she did so for mental health issues yeah. and has received considerable sympathy in, in the culture and the press because, mm -hmm. you know, rightly in many ways, we take mental health issues uh, with, with a degree of seriousness that would not have 
applied at the end of the 18th century when Thomas Jefferson was around. But when your, your dominant paradigm of what it means to be a free and flourishing human being means uh, free to feel good, free to be affirmed by those around me, then, uh, and again, I've said this many times, things that were once upon a time regarded as social virtues that, that facilitated the freedom to own property, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, these things become problematic because the mere holding of an opinion that makes you, if I hold an opinion and express that opinion, and that makes you feel bad, yeah, that is the equivalent of breaking your leg or right. picking your pocket, if you like, for people today. So, I, I think we live in a, a world where the old value of religious freedom is inevitably coming under pressure because we have a new understanding of, for want of a better term, selfhood or personhood. So, take Jack Phillips for example. When you and I hear, you know, a gay couple go in, they want to order a, a cake from the local cake baker. Uh, and he turns them down. You and I think, well, they're not going to starve. They can go to a shop down the road and get right. a cake. Uh, he's not uh, depriving them of one of the essentials of life. This is really a relatively trivial refusal. Right. Whereas for the gay couple and for many people today who bought into the, the psychologized selfhood, what's actually going on there is, is the cake baker is refusing to recognize, to acknowledge the legitimacy of the identity of the people asking for the cake. So it's the equivalent of, in the 1950s, a person of color going into a restaurant and saying, you can only use that restroom over there. You can only sit at that table there. You've got to sit at the back of the bus. Uh, and we automatically find that very obnoxious. Right. You know, that To us, that isn't trivial. Well, the sexual revolution has really made matters of, we might say, sexual identity recognition uh, important. And that's where it becomes problematic for religious freedom, because as Christians, we're objecting to patterns of behavior. The way we're heard is a refusal or rejection of particular identities. And of course, what's interesting about the Jack Phillips case, which, which did go well, ultimately, the Supreme Court, but it was decided on freedom of artistic expression. Right, which was, was problematic. Not, yeah, it was, it was a win for religious freedom, but it was yeah. not a strong win for no. religious freedom. And the Baronel Stoltman case is, is interesting because... Yeah, that was not an artistic freedom case, and it was not heard by the Supreme Court. Yeah. Now, just last week, uh, Robbie George and Ryan Anderson published uh, an article, I think, uh, uh, saying that a, a divided opinion in a lower court on another case mm. might open up a possibility for filing a petition again to the Supreme Court on the Baronel case. Yeah. Uh, I, that's way beyond my can in terms of legal procedure and competence to comment sure. on. But, you know, that case may not be dead yet, right. but even if it isn't dead, it's hanging by a thread. And that's a stunning, uh, a stunning situation for a country that has a First Amendment uh, to be in at this point. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, this last year, I read a book that's a few years old now called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it's fascinating uh, because one of the... Uh, the, the book is structured around several uh, untruths that the authors name, and and one of those untruths is that uh, words are violence. 
something that's now just become a part of the cultural background, particularly with the younger generation. And you alluded to this earlier. And, and I think that there's something to be said for that point about some of the, am, at best, ambivalence towards religious liberty is that um, religious speech uh, can be violent. It can mm. hurt someone. Yeah. Well, of course, it doesn't physically, it doesn't break their leg and it doesn't pick their pocket, but it, it can hurt their feelings because it yeah. will present an idea that they disagree with. And yeah. we have a growing number of people that equate that with violence. Yeah. And, 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 and let's be honest, we, we all acknowledge the truth of that at some level. I always say, I say this in class, you know, I, I played sports at school. I got a little scar of one. I got kicked in the head in a rugby game, a house rugby game at school. Uh, I, I can't remember the various bashes that I took unless mm. there are sort of little scars left on my body. Like, But I still remember cruel words that were said to me yeah. and cruel words that I said to other people. Sure. So it, it's not that this idea that, that you know, words of violence is complete nonsense. I think we do understand that some of the cruelest things we experience are linguistic. And that's why there are certain words we don't use anymore because we know they're bad words and we know they do damage people. So, you know, just to be clear on the program, we're not saying that, that words don't have violent pungency. At exactly. And, and the authors of the book acknowledge yeah. everything that you just said, that, yeah. that words yeah. can, can harm, they can hurt. What, what they take issue with is how the, um, the definition of violence has expanded so yeah. much yeah. beyond that which is an actual threat yeah. to my body and to my safety. And how there's often an equivalence has kicked in as well. Right. You say right. something nasty about me, you might as well have raped me. That's exactly. the way you feel from, from the way you hear some people talking. Exactly. And in fact, they, they, they go into detail in quoting uh, student protesters on college campuses everywhere from Middlebury College to... Um, uh, to UC Berkeley that have, you know, were, have been rather famous for chasing off conservative speakers. Yeah, yeah. And, and they quote from the op-eds and the student papers of those who were defending the protesters yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and making this connection that, that the words and the ideas they speak um, will, um, you know, cause a clear and present danger to this yeah. particular group on campus. It, it, it threatens to obliterate this group or destroy this group. And and so anymore now, of course, we're at a time where you know, saying all of that, uh, uh, believing what Christians have believed for 2000 years is more and more now being seen as what is bigoted and hateful. And instead of just being a noxious idea to someone, it it, it is now something that threatens their existence. And unfortunately, um, I, I, I think the ambivalence towards religious liberty that we're seeing among a lot of younger evangelicals. Um, betrays at least a little bit that they might buy into that, at least to some degree, that they might acknowledge that, well, you know, maybe some of the things we believe do, you know, hurt them. Well, I will acknowledge that there are things that are preached in a, in a faithful Christian church that are going to hurt the feelings of sinners. Yeah. Um, it's, called that, it's called the law. It's called the law, law of God. Paul would say. It, exactly. Luther I mean, I'm preaching, I'm preaching through James right now which is New Testament, you know, it, it's a recapitulation of some Old Testament laws. James uh, draws heavily on the language and categories of the law. He only mentions yeah. Jesus Christ directly twice. The rest yeah, is- Luther is, noticed that and didn't like it very much. <laughs> Luther yes. did not <laughs> like it very much. And it's been interesting because I kind of 
prepare the folks a lot of times uh, uh, before I preach to say, now, listen, you're going to hear law this morning. You're going to hear commands. You're going to hear admonitions that are to Christian people, you know, and, um, uh, and it's, it's been very good. It's been very sharpening, but it's been hard because, you know, I, I say all that to say, you know, I'm preaching things that are hurting the feelings of Christians to some degree, just because we're, we're pointing out sin. We're pointing about the common ways we sin in terms of the, of, of how we speak to one another, denying justice, partiality, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what preaching does. So we understand that. But maybe uh, there, there's a generation that, that that sees just that basic confrontation that happens in good preaching, where the law is made clear, is now in and of itself suspect because of the way it hurts my feelings, because of the way it makes me feel uncomfortable or accused, that, that, that sort of thing. Well, and I would say that's an example of how the worldly therapeutic ideal has has come to to capture the imagination of the church. Right. That uh, you know, Philip Reef. I've quoted this many times. It's mm-hmm. not an exact quotation today because I've got the book in front of me. But Philip Reef makes the comment that in the Middle Ages, people didn't go to church to be made to feel happy. <clears throat> they went to have their misery explained to them. Yeah. <clears throat> Nobody goes to church today to have their misery explained to them. We go. We go to be made happy. And and of course, this again. This is not a new development in the church, in that the church has had a problem with worldliness since the world, you know, the church began. And, you know, a generation ago, guess what? The church often identified a Christian blessing with worldly prosperity. One might say the Jeffersonian mentality of, you know, hey, I own property, and that's a sign of God's blessing. That was pungent within the church. Now, I think we, we're in this sort of psychological realm where, well, you go to the church to, to make, you know, your best life now, that's going to be a bestseller. Uh, right, right. Your worst life now because of an eternal weight of glory some point down the line, <laughs> that's not going to sell. It's going to be a harder jobs. sell. <laughs> okay. So let me ask you this. You teach undergraduate students for a living. You spend a lot of time with university students. You spend a lot of time thinking about how to instruct um, maybe in certain cases, how, how to persuade, but how to teach them to think critically. And even though Grove City College is a well-known Christian university, nevertheless, you're still dealing with a generation of Christian young people who many of them are give very little thought to religious liberty. Yeah. And maybe those yeah. who do, um, you know, aren't convinced it's that seemly for Christians yeah. to try to yeah. really press yeah. to maintain religious liberty. How would you speak to them to say, no, here's why it's good. Here's why it's good. Not only for you, but for your neighbor who doesn't believe. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think there are a couple of, a couple of things to say uh, on that score. Uh, one, I think often it's not so much that they think it's a problem with religious liberty, but it's often a problem with the particular examples. So yeah, for example, yeah. the cake baker is a kind of, I've, I've had students say to me in the past, you know, I hold the biblical position on, on homosexuality. Mm-hmm. I don't approve of it as a way of life, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I, I think the cake baker is being petty and, and cruel by not mm-hmm. making a cake. And what I did in that case was I, I used an example. I think I got this example actually from friend of this program, Frank Beckwith. Frank mm-hmm. has got some great stuff yeah. out there on things like religious liberty. I said, well, what about the local Baptist pastor? You know, do you think that if if I turn up, let's say, with a with a baby at the local Baptist church and demand that the local <laughs> Baptist pastor sp- 
sprinkle the child. And it, this works well with Baptist students, I yes. have to say. It's, it's a Baptist <laughs> students. And, and I demand that the local Baptist pastor, because, hey, he's providing a religious service to the right. community. He's even getting tax exemptions for it. Yeah. So, and I demand that he baptize my infant. Mm. Do you think that I should be able to take him to the Supreme Court and ruin him if he refuses? And the students often say, well, well no, because he's a Baptist. <laughs> and I'll say, well, yes, right. exactly. And, and, and I would defend his right to refuse right. to baptize my child because it, it, it goes against his, his religious convictions. So I've used examples like that, mm. that, that if you like, you know, Religious freedom always seems like an equivocal or a bad idea when it's somebody else doing right. something that we find a bit distasteful. Right. When it cuts close to something that we hold dear, seems a much better idea at that point. So I would I would do that on one level. I also point out that, you know, isn't it interesting that um, that no halal butchers are being required to provide non-halal meat. Right. Isn't it interesting? There've got to be some Muslim florists out there. Yeah. There've got to be some Muslim florists. There've yes. got to be some Muslim cake bakers out there. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that none of the court cases being brought against them? Right. Because they only go after the Christians. Yeah. That's, you know, I always feel one has to be careful not to play the, it's all about beating up the Christians. But mm. I think you can sow, sow seeds to, to, to get people to, mm -hmm. uh, to think about those things. So those would be two of the, of the yeah. strategies uh, I would adopt. You could also say, well, okay, if we're going to restrict religious freedom, who gets to decide? Yeah. Uh, also point out, of course, that religious freedom has never been an unqualified right. I cannot sacrifice my children in the fire to Moloch. They're bigger than me now. I mean, they'd be sacrificing me to Moloch anyway. Of course, they've probably but thought about the, it. The First Amendment has never allowed complete crazy freedom right. of religion the background of the First Amendment was the assumption that you're basically going to be dealing with Christian sectarianism. That is true. That uh, is know, true. Anything from the Roman Catholics right the way through to the Unitarians and the yeah. Quakers. The idea that you were going to be dealing with you know, questions about whether it's legitimate to smoke peyote in, in right. religious festivals, these things were way beyond the purview of the founders. Rightly or wrongly, they just were. And I think part of the problem now is we have this First Amendment that is required to deal with a far more complicated sure. religious situation than that mm -hmm. we have. But I think there are various ways. I, I think on issues like this where people have an intuitive, instinctive reaction, say, against it, the Socratic method of getting people to think through the implications. Okay, what about the Baptist pastor who's required to baptize the infant? Yeah. Let's take that as an example. That's a good way, I think, of getting to mm -hmm. getting students to think about religious liberty. Yeah. And you know, and for for good reason. And I'm I'm thankful for this, although it it is sometimes overused. I'm I'm glad that there has been a a revisiting in 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 a recent generation about um, the idea of the goodness of of human flourishing. That, that's a good thing. Sometimes it's overplayed, but it's a that is a good category, and we need to talk about that because. I think that's caring about the flourishing of my neighbor. That's an expression of loving my neighbor and uh, a, a, a culture. And we can look at this historically, a culture that values religious liberty. And there's not a whole lot of them in history, but it's clear that unbelievers do well in a society where there is religious liberty, yeah. that unbelievers do quite well. Yeah. In well, fact, that their unbelief is protected. It's, in a, it's, in a I culture mean, like this. Religious freedom is really 
uh, you know, a subset of freedom of speech. I know there are some distinctives, right. particularly in law, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. distinctions would be made. But by and large, religious freedom is simply one aspect of what we would call a free society. Right. Uh, and right to start, assemble, liberty yeah, of conscience. Yeah. When you start to restrict freedom of speech, all all manner of things become very, very complicated right. at that point. Right. And as you said, I mean, you said people flourish. I would go further and say, yeah, and people don't get persecuted. That's right. Yeah. The man who happens in his private life to disagree with gay marriage, but hey, he's a really good stockbroker or mm -hmm. he's a really good interior decorator and right. he's not refusing to serve gay customers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as long as it's not causing him to, to compromise his beliefs, yeah. is a perfectly good and functioning member of society. Right. Uh, you know, the other way of, of thinking about this is, you know, what about should the gay cake baker mm. or the cake baker, you know, a person of color is a cake baker, be made to produce a cake for a Ku Klux Klan celebration. Right. Exactly. And, and, and of course, say, the notion is ridiculous to even think that yeah, we would insist yeah. on that. Should Elton John be required to play at my son's wedding? And if he doesn't, <laughs> should I be able to sue him out of existence? No. Right. I mean, frankly, I wouldn't want Elton John playing my son's <laughs> wedding. You know, uh, I still, I'm still smarting from the tiny dancer crack that you made many years ago on this program. But, uh, yeah, well, you know, tiny dancer. I, I, I I've, I've, lo I've long thought of you as the Elton John of reformed uh, theology, and uh, the only Elton John song I have a sympathy for is "Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting." <laughs> <laughs> as long as you're prepared for the Sabbath the day after, of course. Of course. <laughs> Of course, because we're about religious so, liberty here. Yeah. Well, it's been a, 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 a topic on a discussion of a topic that we are unlikely to uh, either to solve or to see the back of anytime soon. Hey, Carl, let me ask you a question. Yeah. I, mean, I know you're in the middle of closing. But let me ask you a question, just a, 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 as a way to point maybe our, our listeners. What have you found to be maybe the best organizations that are doing the most thoughtful work in this area where people can get online and read good articles and that kind of thing. Yeah. Who's doing yeah. the best work on this stuff? Yeah, I think uh, there is the, uh, um, well, we, we always mention public discourse. Right. Public discourse is a great source for general cultural commentary from a conservative perspective, not mm -hmm. necessarily distinctively Christian. Right. Uh, uh, public discourse often carry articles, particularly on the sort of pressing legal cases mm -hmm. today on uh, religious freedom. Um, there are, of course, various uh, organizations that, that litigate religious freedom yeah. cases. There's the Alliance for Defending Freedom mm -hmm. that tends to be, it's not a, a distinctively evangelical organization, mm -hmm. but tends to be more Protestant. Right. Uh, there's also the Beckett Fund. The Beckett Fund is smaller, I think, than the ADF and takes, the Beckett Fund, I think, only takes religious liberty cases that it, re, that it thinks will be precedential. So it's, mm. it's in the game of setting very Precedent. important religious yeah. precedents uh, within uh, society. Um, I'm just looking on my desk here for a, a card I was given by somebody recently. The Religious Freedom Institute, uh, okay. run by uh, Professor Tom Farr. Oh, okay, used to be yeah. at Georgetown, uh, but the Religious Freedom Institute, uh, their byline is working to secure religious freedom for everyone everywhere. Again, that's something uh, to look up. Uh, RFI.org will get you to their website. Mm -hmm. So there are numerous organizations yeah, out there. Yeah. And I would also say, you know, if you, if you are a, uh, 
you know, you, if you have the skills or the resources to be able to help any of these organizations, yes. uh, many of them, uh, you know, run on a shoestring and are always mm -hmm. looking for help. Uh, Ismail Hernandez, Freedom mm -hmm. Virtue Institute, Grove City College has its own Institute for Faith and Freedom. That's these right. are smaller local operations, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of groups out there dealing with this. Yeah, so we good. urge our listeners to go and visit and be informed, be yes. informed. Uh, and of course, uh, if you visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, we're actually uh, uh, have a number of copies of Andrew Walker, good friend of this program, good friend of mine, Southern Baptist Seminary and the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Andrew Walker's published a super new book with a foreword by Robbie George entitled Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. Little bit Baptist at points, I have to say, Andrew, <laughs> if you're listening, but, uh, but other than that, it's not a bad read. So uh, uh, go to our website, mortificationspin.org, enter for a chance to win a copy of that book. While you're there, if you feel uh, led by the Spirit to make a donation, remember we are a, a listener-supported uh, podcast. And uh, all that now remains for me is to say uh, thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. So until next week, we say goodbye for now, and may God bless. Good night. September 22nd, discover the exciting new Blessings of the Faith series from PNR Publishing. Featuring Jason Halopoulos on covenantal baptism, David Strain on expository preaching, and Guy Richard on persistent prayer. Three of the most trusted and distinguished voices of the faith answer your questions about these important Reformed Church practices in a way that every layperson will understand. The new Blessings of the Faith series will be available September 22nd from PNR Publishing, bringing you books that promote biblical understanding and godly living, as summarized in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. Visit prpbooks.com to learn more. prpbooks.com